0: listener production This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host Dr. Keith Suda is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat, I'm a journalist. The recent G20 summit in India went ahead without one crucial guest, China's President Xi Jinping. Observers think it sends a pretty clear message. China is done with the established world order. But what is the country pursuing instead? To find out, Keith is here to explain. Keith, welcome. So, no China at the G20. Do you think it sends a strong message to the rest of the world?
1: Yes, it does, because clearly I think he's saying, look, the G20, the group of 20... Really doesn't represent the priority for Chinese views. And instead, he's working through an alternative body called BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and now South Africa. And from the beginning of next year, there'll be newer members added to it. Bit of a power play underway at the moment. On the one hand, you've got China downplaying the G20, of which Australia, by the way, is a member. And we, we had a G20 summit ourselves. I was there in Brisbane, mm-hmm. got to meet President Obama. Oh. So you got the G20, but China figures that it will do better working through this other group called BRICS. So what we're seeing then uh, with the behaviour of China last week at the New Delhi conference, what happened at the G20 meeting is that you do get a great number of countries represented there, a great number of people. It's about 40% of the world's population. Uh, in fact, no, it's actually more than that because if you're providing you've got China in attendance, so, and it's a substantial part of the economy. It's very confusing. There are just so many Gs around. <laughs> Let me go back to the grandfather of all of the Gs. The original grandfather were the G3. That was the United States, United Kingdom, and the, the old Soviet Union. So they met during World War Two. Mm. So they became the original G3. And, of course, then we had the Cold War, and they didn't meet so frequently and certainly so not on a regular basis. Then in 1973, we get the oil crisis with a dramatic increase in the price of oil. And so a number of the major Western countries decided to come together to discuss the common crisis. And so you now have a G7, so that's a group of seven. So that's the United States, UK, France, Italy, Canada. So they are the major Western countries. Economies and they meet each year. But what is happening is that we're getting now and emerging this whole what's called the global south. Some members of the global south are actually in the global north, which is a bit confusing. But the <laughs> global south, like you know, the African countries, Latin American countries, India India is not in the G7, mm. even though it's bigger than pretty well all of the other members except for the United States yeah. now. So What we're getting then is this rise of the global south and the global south needs to find its own forum. And so in the global financial crisis in 2008, which was actually triggered by those G7 countries, it was decided to ramp up this G20 architecture. Mm. So we now have annual meetings of the G20 because they represent a large part of the world's population. There are about 200 countries in the world, but 20 are the really big players. And they also represent much of the global economy. So that's why we have these annual meetings of the G20. But the argument with President Xi, who offered no explanation as to why he did not attend the G20, he sent along instead the, uh, the Chinese Prime Minister, very distinguished and senior figure, but not not President Xi himself. Mm. There's no explanation given. The Chinese don't hold media conferences in the way that we're used to in the West where we can interrogate things. So he just decided not to attend. One explanation is that he's now wanting to work through a whole new grouping. This is the BRICS grouping, which we need to look at. Also, because he doesn't get on very well with India. And India at the moment is on a bit of a a roll. Mm. The Indian economy is growing rapidly, whereas there are continued question marks over China. China has all sorts of domestic issues, uh, a real estate bubble, which is bursting and causing problems, including here in Australia, by the way. Chinese companies are withdrawing their property investments. They're repatriating capital back into China. They've also got social problems. The Chinese are now lying flat. So when you graduate from university, you've given up looking for a job. What they're doing is they're living with their parents. That's it. They're not bothering to look for work. Yeah. China's got real problems. On the other hand, you look at India and the economy is booming. There are now more Indians than there are Chinese. China runs the risk of growing old before it grows rich. And so I think President Xi just has got his nose out of job because clearly India is now overtaking China in some respects.
0: Mm. You mentioned it there a little bit. How does the BRICS alliance play into all of this?
1: So BRICS is a term that was invented by Jim O'Neill who was a financier. He's now a member of the House of Lords. And he coined the acronym BRIC, Brazil, Russia, India, and China back in the year 2001. He was just simply saying, look, these are major countries that you need to bear in mind in terms of global economy. Don't be so fixated on what we would might call the G7 countries some of whom are getting into problems. Japan is a member of the G7 and has got a stagnant economy. It's had a stagnant economy for 30 years. You wouldn't guess that if you visit Japan, things seem to be ticking over nicely, but it's built on a huge amount of debt and all sorts of things. So Jim O'Neill was simply saying, look, as a financier, we've got to look outside our comfort zone and look at Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And then a decade ago, South Africa joined that Mm. grouping. So we now talk about BRICS rather than BRIC. And it's interesting because Jim O'Neill recently had an article published saying, look, I didn't intend this to take off in the way that it has. (laughs) You know, we're now talking about an organisation. People are talking about it as being China's new platform with which to challenge American dominance of the global economy. I didn't intend any of that. I was just simply saying there are four countries we've got to keep an eye on in terms of foreign investment opportunities. This has become a monster which has outgrown its creator.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think um, or agree with the idea, I guess, that after World War II, the globe's governance kind of swayed too far to the West and that's why groups like BRICS are starting to emerge?
1: Absolutely. So after World War II, the Soviet Union pretty well excluded itself from global economic activities. It had an economic model which was autarkic, in other words, that the money stayed within the soviet union which enabled it to cross subsidize all sorts of things so if you were a russian citizen it was very cheap for you to fly from say your home where you know moscow whatever to the ski fields
0: mm.
1: because each of the flights got subsidized if you're a foreigner like myself you paid through the nose but if you're a russian citizen you got special treatment because they were able to control the economy As I say, it's an autarkic economy. Here in Australia, we just can't understand how that operates with all sorts of subsidies, all sorts of assistance to domestic industries. So the Soviet Union only traded with itself and some of its European satellites Mm -hmm. and gave a bit of trade to some of the countries in Africa, but it was not a major player in terms of foreign aid. Completely different economic model from the United States. So the United States finished World War II, easily the biggest economic player. The British economy was basically bankrupt. All the other European countries were broke. And so America filled that vacuum, which had been created by the disappearance of the UK and to a certain extent France, and then dominated the financial sector. We talk about the Washington consensus because the major players in global economics were all based in Washington, obviously the US government. But the World Bank, International Monetary Fund. And so the United States had a clear run in terms of the global economy all the way through to the oil crisis back in 1973. And it was at that point, Henry Kissinger advising Richard Nixon, who was able to say, we've got to work with other countries to try to revive the Western economy. Hence, we get the creation of the G7 mm-hmm. as an emergency response to that. So... America was the dominant player. It still is the dominant player. Its currency is still the dominant currency. The Europeans have tried to make the euro, Euro, the currency throughout most of Europe, they've tried to make that a a dominant player, but it's still very much the US dollar. And so far, the US government has always honoured its debts. Mm -hmm. So if you've got spare money and you need a safe place to invest, which includes China, by the way, Mm -hmm. You buy American treasuries, American bonds. Right. And China's bought a hell of a lot of them. So the Chinese are buying up the American debt. But there, I think the way things are going in China, they're going to have to start selling some of that stuff just simply to help some of their own domestic problems. The US is still the major economic player. But there are a lot of other countries, including China, saying, oh, look, we've got to find alternatives to this control over our our own national economies, which the Americans exert on us.
0: This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. And this week, we're discussing China's recent snub of the G20 summit and what it means. Keith, looking at these different Gs and BRICS <laughs> and all of them. I mean, what are we likely to see over the coming years with global governing bodies? Are they as effective and important as they used to be?
1: Well, I don't think they're living up to the aspirations that we had originally for them. The UN Secretary-General is talking about a new agenda for peace, so we'll need to look at that at some point. But the UN is clearly not the significant player that we'd hoped for it. back in 1945. I'm a great supporter of the UN, and involved with the UN Association. But it's not quite carrying out the role that a lot of us would have hoped for. Mm. Remember, I'm a dinosaur, so I go all the way back to the (laughs) 1960s in my support for the UN. It is actually difficult to get countries to work together on common concerns. So if you look right the way across all of the issues that we've got, like climate change, asylum seekers, trying to prevent war as an instrument of national policy... All the international organisations are failing. It could be far worse. I don't want people to be too depressed. It could be could be living in a real jungle. We're not quite there yet, but there are some people I'm sure in parts of Africa or Latin America who are saying, "Well, look, we are living in a jungle. It's it's um, too much chaos." And so, yes, the international organisations are really not as effective, and we've still got strong national governments running with their own individual agendas, so they are unwilling to work with other countries because they just want to focus on their own short-term national interests. Mm.
0: Do you think other nations who were at G20 and China's president wasn't there, do you think they take it as a snub, I guess, to be like, oh, well, you know, if the president doesn't care, then China doesn't care. Why are we here? Why are we doing this?
1: Well, I think there was still obviously a desire to have the meeting and India behaved well in the way that it managed to get consensus the most controversial part of the G20 was uh, the statement on Ukraine. Not as strong as we would like because a lot of those members of the G20 broadly supportive of Russia or taking a neutral role, including India itself. Mm. India continues to trade with Russia. It doesn't accept there's a need for international sanctions against Russia. And of course, the other great omission from the G20 was President Putin, mm-hmm. who is now confined to Russia. Mm-hmm. He's worried that if he does travel overseas, he might well get arrested and end <laughs> up being flown to The Hague. Yeah. So the non-appearance of President Chi would certainly have been a disappointment, if only for all the photo shoots. You know, everybody <laughs> wants to be photographed bit. with the man. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. What's the ideal outcome here could it be a merge between the G20 and BRICS? I know there's crossover there, but, you know, is it time that we kind of stopped having all these separate ones and had everyone kind of come together?
1: It's going to be very difficult to achieve that. So what's happening with BRICS is that it's an organisation which is dominated by China in a way that China does not dominate the G20. Mm. From China's point of view, the G20 has too many alternative potential leaders, obviously the United States being the major contender. So we've almost got an international system where, where you've got some groupings dominated by the Americans, obviously the G7, and some that are very clearly dominated by China, which is BRICS, or the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, which is yet another grouping of countries. Again, China is the major player there. And it's interesting to note that due to Chinese lobbying, BRICS will increase their membership so as from next year, there'll be six more countries in BRICS. I don't know what it does to the acronym, by the way. It's going to be very confusing. <laughs> but you've got Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Mm-hmm. Now, what is interesting is having Iran and Saudi Arabia in the same room. But then China has been trying to broker a peace between these two longstanding enemies. Mm. And so he's really carrying out in the Middle East the role that you'd normally expect the Americans to do. Yeah which is to bring these countries together. Obviously, Iran would not accept negotiations with the United States. It still would not recognized in terms of diplomacy. So this is a dispute that goes back to 1979, whereas China is able to work with both countries.
0: So I guess it's a sign potentially of kind of a move away from this Western-focused global world order and, you know, seeing that other countries, other big countries have a great role to play. Yes,
1: exactly it. So we're, we're going through a turning point in world affairs where India and China are becoming major players. The United States will still remain important. but Of course. Uh, but we'll be in a relative decline compared with what you see with the um, relative rise of India and China and, of course, particularly India. So it, it's an interesting transition point which we're currently living, we've become so accustomed to a world dominated by the Americans. And now we're having to talk about perhaps a post-America world where we have to pay more attention to India and China, and who knows what other countries may emerge. I keep warning people, keep an eye on Africa. At the end of this century, there'll be more people living in Africa than India and China combined. Wow. So we're running out of people. Yeah, People are not having children so much in, 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 the, in the particularly the Western world, but they are still producing children in Africa and to a certain extent India. Poor old China now is in, actually in population decline. Yeah. It's running out of people. Mm. Its rate of decline is actually faster than that that you see in Japan. And there are also some allegations that the original calculations about China's huge population may themselves have been wrong. The way in which finance is spread across the country from the central government in Beijing is that it partly goes to areas of high population growth. So if you're a local area and you want to get more money out of the government, you inflate your population figures
0: Mm -hmm. because that
1: way you're going to get more money.
0: Okay, that's interesting. And so
1: the Chinese may well, all the way along, have been lying about the total number of people who actually live in China. And at the moment, of course, you know, many... Chinese people figure, look, it'll be easier to buy a car than have a baby. Even though the Chinese government has said we've got rid of the one-child policy, people are saying, great, but we're not interested. <laughs> now say so you can go up to four children. They're not even having one. So it's a very interesting development. So, yes, we're seeing a turning point in world affairs, relative decline of the United States, a relative rise of India and China. But those two countries themselves have their own problems. So I don't want to over-exaggerate the potential strength of India and China, but it means that there are new coalitions being formed and we need to bear that in mind.
0: Mm, as always, time will tell. Thank you, Keith, for your time. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barbagat. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.